Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 38, Questions on Doctrine, Part 2. Last time we talked about Donald Gray Barnhouse, this giant of fundamental evangelicalism. He's bridging that, uh, that transition there and just... How much of a pugilist he was, you know, he, he inherited some anti-Avenist views from his teachers and, and also from his own experience growing up near the Pacific Press in California and how things began to change after uh, a letter he received from uh, Edgar Unruh in 1949 in response to his radio broadcast, one of his radio broadcasts on Romans and how that started a little dialogue with Unruh, who was a conference president. And uh, that went nowhere after Barnhouse's scathing review of Steps to Christ. But then Barnhouse had a little epiphany, a come-to-Jesus moment in early 1953 that led to him wanting to have better relationships with other Christians. And then we also talked about Walter Martin, who was a, a protege of Barnhouse, a young, just extremely gifted clergyman, thinker, writer, who specialized in cults and was going to write this book about Adventists being a cult, and so he requested this meeting with church leaders. And I think that's about where we wrapped it up. Really big, really big intro into this whole questions and doctrine thing, which we're going to spend a few episodes on. Now, before we talk about the first meeting between the Adventists and uh, the Evangelicals, I need to correct a mistake I made in the previous episode when I began talking about the 50th anniversary of the Questions and Doctrine conference that was in 2007? Yeah. Well, I also had said that the the version of Questions and Doctrine, which I still have here on my desk next to me, was the 50th anniversary edition. Ron Knott reached out. He's the director of the Andrews University Press. He reached out and said, hey, <laughs> this is not the 50th anniversary edition of the book. It actually came out a few years before the 50th anniversary of QOD. Uh, and so it's really just the annotated edition of QOD came out in 2003. And in my mind, I just conflated the two because, well, I first saw the annotated edition of QOD at the 50th anniversary conference. So here's my mea culpa. Okay. Hopefully, Ron Knott will tell us a little bit more about the annotated edition, which he published uh, sometime soon. So we hope to get him on here. Or at least he can share some thoughts on that at some point. Okay, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. The Evangelicals and Adventists met for the first time on March 8, 1955 at the General Conference office at 1.30 p.m. In fact, they said that they found an empty office. Later on, they said they had been meeting in Roy Allen Anderson's office as he was traveling and gone, so they just took over his office. That may have been where they met this time, or maybe they just picked different, whatever, whatever office was free when they were there. Anyways, this was to be the first of 18 meetings over the next year. Martin showed up with what Froome called, quote, a formidable list of definitely hostile and slanted questions, end quote, 40 of them to be exact. Now, it was clear that Martin was leaning heavily on former Adventists like Dudley M. Canwright and Ernest B. Jones to, to come up with these questions. 
Canry, of course, had known Ellen and James White, and his name is familiar to anyone who's been listening to this podcast, especially season one. Now, Ernest B. Jones, on the other hand, is, a, is less well-known. Jones was a former Adventist missionary to India, and he was a publisher. He's in the publishing work. And in the spirit of BuzzFeed, he published 40 Reasons Why You Should Not Become a Seventh-day Adventist. Arthur White called many of these reasons, quote, very shallow, end quote. But if you're an outsider like Martin and you see Canwright blasting Adventists in the 1880s about some things, and then you see E.B. Jones, you know, Ernest B. Jones blasting Adventists in the 1940s with basically the same arguments, you know, you, you might think that there's something to it, okay? If all of your ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends say you stole money from them, you know, you tend to think, how can they be wrong? Right? If, if so many people, one after the other, say that something is true, how can it be wrong? Now, Martin challenged Adventists on the divinity of Christ, the atonement, the law, the Sabbath, the investigative judgment, Ellen White, the whole nine yards. Or for our non-American listeners out there, the whole three meters. <laughs> that just doesn't sound as good, to be honest. <laughs> Anyways, Martin believed that Adventists believed that you had to keep the Sabbath to be saved. That salvation itself was not complete on the cross, but only at the second coming, which to him minimized the importance of Jesus' death on the cross. He wanted to know if going to church on Sunday meant he had the mark of the beast or anybody else had the mark of the beast. And above all, Martin wanted to know if Adventists were anti-Trinitarian. Martin wasn't just asking questions, okay? He, he brought quotes from Adventist publications, which seemed to deny the deity of Christ here, or this other publication, which denied his equality with the Father over there. Now, sure, Martin admitted, some recent books you guys have published are firmly Trinitarian, but what am I to do with all of this contradictory information, right? I got Uriah Smith over here saying one thing. He's, he's, he's a, as close to being a founder as anyone can be, He's making these Aryan or semi-Aryan claims about Jesus. Your more recent books are saying another thing about Jesus. Which one of these is true? How am I supposed to make sense out of this? You guys have some people who seem to be uh, all for Jesus being a member of the Godhead, a member of the Trinity. And you have some people who say, well, he's not divine. And some people say he's not equal with the Father. Like, what do you guys actually believe here? Now, Froome described Martin's rapid-fire way of shooting his questions at them, like bang, 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 bang. But Froome and Reed resisted the urge to merely defend themselves from the attack. Instead, they asked Martin if they might begin, not with denials, but with affirmations. Can we tell you what Adventists do believe? Rather than responding to 40 questions, Adventists believe in the deity of Christ, his atoning death on the cross, his literal resurrection, and so on and so on and so on. From there, Froome and Reed began passionately denying some of the more egregious charges which Martin was leveling against the church. T.E. Unruh, Edgar Unruh, who had planted that first seed by reaching out to Barnhouse in 1949, served as chair. And as he remembered it, quote, this first meeting can best be described as confrontational, end quote. <laughs> Sounds like it. At the end of the first day, it became apparent that two challenges faced these men. First, there's a lack of trust. Froome and Reed and Unruh could affirm salvation by grace through faith alone all day long. But how does Martin know that you guys are just not dissembling to tell me what I want to hear? 
or hiding through some loophole in language, right? Maybe faith means something different to you, Adventist, than it does to us. And maybe you do mean what I think you mean, but how do I know your beliefs represent all Adventists? Because I've got some books out here that suggest that there's some confusion on this. Besides, if Adventists were a cult, as Martin suspected, you couldn't expect them to give a straight answer. Ah, you caught us, we're a cult. You know, so how do we solve this trust problem? How can Martin and Cannon trust anything that Froome and company are saying? Well, for starters, the General Conference would, I mean, eventually, let Martin borrow any book he wanted from the vault. You want to see what we've published? You want to see what we have in our heart of hearts here at the General Conference? Have at it. You can borrow any book you want. And that move showed trust. And somewhere, Claude Holmes is rolling in his grave. Oh, so you open up the vault to him, huh? But I have to steal things? Okay, I see how it is. Okay, steal is a strong word, but you get what I mean. Anyways, at the end of the first day, it was Froome and Reed who said, look, don't take our word for it. They gave Martin and they gave Cannon a stack of publications to prove that, that Avenus, at least more than just these three, really do believe this stuff. Now, the second challenge that they faced, okay, the first one was a lack of trust. The second challenge was that Walter Martin had been researching and thinking about these questions for a very long time, but Avenus were only now just seeing them. Doesn't mean they weren't familiar with some of these common charges against them, but they're just seeing Martin's articulation of them for the first time. They couldn't possibly respond off the cuff in that moment in a way that would do justice to those questions. I mean, have you ever been asked to explain the Trinity? Just got caught off guard on that one. And if you have deep, even if you have deep thoughts about the Trinity, okay, you often walk away from that conversation like, man, you know, if I had time to collect my thoughts, I could have done a better job presenting what I actually believe. So Froome and company said, look, we're going to write out a, re a very quick response to the questions that night, and, and we can just start with that. that. That can be our basis of our conversation. So they did. Froome is real quick with the pen, apparently, wrote it down. His secretary typed it up. They gave it to Martin and Cannon, and those two men stayed up until 2 o'clock in the morning reading Froome's paper and whatever other materials the Avenus had given them. That sounds like a good time, doesn't it? Let's stay up till 2 a.m. tonight. What do you want to do? Let's read theology. Oh, yeah. Now, Unruh tells us that, quote, the second day will never be forgotten by those who participated in the conferences. As the morning session began, Martin announced that as a result of the first round of discussion and the reading matter he had been given, he was admitting that he had been wrong about Seventh-day Adventism on several important points and had become persuaded that Avenus, who believed as did the conferees, were truly born-again Christians and his brethren in Christ. In a dramatic gesture, he extended his hand in fellowship. End quote. Wow. Man, what did Froome write? <laughs> 20 pages. I mean, 20 pages sounds like a lot. Certainly, it's a lot to write by hand. But you got to keep in mind, he's, he's, he's asking 40 questions. That's a lot of questions, and 20 pages isn't isn't really a lot of space to give to those questions. So obviously this was, it wasn't exactly off the cuff, like in the conversation that they're having across the table from one another. You have some time to think about what you're writing, but you don't have a lot of time. Nevertheless, what Froome and Unruh and Reed together managed to write on that paper was persuasive. 
Now, Froome and company denied that Sabbath keeping was a basis for salvation. Well, then why, Martin asked, were their books being sold in the Adventist Book and Bible House, that was the precursor to the Adventist Book Centers, or ABCs, which in turn were the precursor to nothing, because <laughs> they're kind of closing down. Anyways, uh, you guys have books in the Adventist Book and Bible House, which seem to teach that you needed to keep the Sabbath to be saved. So why are you telling me that you guys don't believe that Sabbath keeping was a basis of salvation? So Vroom and company called for the book in question to be brought from the book and Bible house. They turned to whatever page Martin was quoting, realized that he was correct, and they said, we're going to fix this situation. And in words that would forever haunt Vroom, he told Martin that those Adventists who publish this kind of anti-Trinitarian stuff or that, or that you need to keep the Sabbath to be saved, they belong to the lunatic fringe of the church. It was a phrase that Barnhouse would adopt and just would love, love to use. <laughs> he used it several times in defending his analysis later on that Adventists were, were Christians. He's, you know, whenever people brought up objections, well, Adventists believe this and this and that, he would say, yeah, you know, some, we do have some disagreements with them. And if they brought up something really egregious, they say, yeah, that's just the lunatic fringe of the church. They don't matter. Even Arthur Maxwell, editor of Signs of the Times for what seems like forever, appreciated the accuracy of this phrase in his view. Quote, surely God has raised you up for this vital hour, he told Froome, to help set the remnant people in the right light before the churches. What a tragedy it is that we have so large a lunatic fringe which militates against all our best efforts in this respect, end quote. Now, as we will learn in the next uh, episode or two, some Adventists don't really like being thought of as lunatics by their church leaders. But, you know, who could have known how they would react to that? <laughs> Maxwell's statement helps us understand how Froome saw the meetings with Martin. Froome saw how other Christians saw Adventists and how it was often based on misconceptions, and he wanted to fix that. Like, why would any of these people want to join the Adventist church when they think, you know, when they, when they think we believe some of this crazy stuff? We're going to talk about more of that in a few minutes. Edgar Unruh saw nothing but roses after that first meeting. Sure, it was tough. It was tense at times, but there had been a breakthrough. Speaking of Martin and Cannon, Unruh wrote, quote, they can become our defenders if our next meeting is a successful one, end quote. Just think about that conclusion, okay? Walter Martin and George Cannon came to this first meeting with guns on the table. We think you're a cult. We're going to write a book saying that you're a cult. We just have some questions for you to answer. Okay, and then by the end of that day, or I should say the early the next day, Martin's like, you know what? I think we were wrong about you guys in some respects. What a turnaround in 24 hours. So Unruh is just exalting after this first meeting, these first two days, like that, that this person who came to persecute us, this person who came to perpetuate the demonization of the Seventh-day Adventist church among evangelicals, this person could become our defender if our next meeting is a successful one. 
Wow. They met again on March 17, a week later, at Edgar Unruh's office, at the conference office in Reading, Pennsylvania. We don't know a whole lot about this meeting, except that they discussed Avenus' views of the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. Okay, so not to get too much in the weeds here, but basically Avenus are following this Day of Atonement imagery, believing that in the end, the sins that people had been forgiven of in the, in the sanctuary system, those sins went from the person to the animal who was sacrificed. The animal's blood would be uh, brought into the sanctuary. And then one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the blood carrying the guilt of those people's sins would be placed on the scapegoat, which was a, a type pointing towards Satan, and it would be led out into the wilderness to die. And so, of course, this is something that Barnhouse had brought up and it scandalized many, many, many critics of Adventism in the evangelical world, saying, does that mean Satan is our sin bearer? I thought Jesus was our sin bearer. How can you guys get that mixed up? Adventists, of course, don't believe that. It's just a common misconception. Uh, I mean, they do believe the thing about all the sins being put on the scapegoat as a type of Satan, but not that Satan bears our sins. In any case, they it seems, cleared that up a bit, and the meeting seems to have gone well. Now, the tone of the meetings had changed, and Martin realized that his first set of questions was based on huge misconceptions and an unwarranted hostility. So he wrote a new list of questions. We're down to 24 this time, so yay for brevity. And he sent the list for the Avenus to consider. Meanwhile, Martin faced the unenviable task of informing Donald Barnhouse that he no longer thought of Adventists as a cult. However... However that conversation went, it produced some fruit with Barnhouse because Barnhouse called Unruh on the phone and apologized for his review of Steps to Christ that he had published in 1950. Remember that one we talked about in the last episode where he just kind of savaged Ellen White and Steps to Christ saying, if I just looked at the first page of the preface, I would have thrown this book down. You never would have bought this book. And Barnhouse realizes uh, you know, he still didn't like Steps of Christ, don't get me wrong, but he's like, I didn't handle that the right way. To which everybody who ever saw that article said, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> okay, not back then, but today. But here he is apologizing. All right, progress is being made. On April 11th, 1955, they met again, went through Martin's 24 questions. Froome wrote 18 of the responses in true Alexander Hamilton Federalist paper style, and Reed wrote eight. The five men also discussed the former president of Biola, Lewis Talbot, and his recent tirade against Adventists in The King's Business, his magazine. Talbot's series of three articles, the first of which was published as Adventists and Evangelicals were meeting, was nothing short of a tirade designed to expose Adventists as a cult. Okay, the very first sentence reads, quote, I consider Seventh-day Adventism to be the most deceptive of all the cults, end quote. It's like there's a competition to have the most forceful, uh, aggressive, decisive language about Adventism, I guess, between Barnhouse and Talbot and others. Now, the whole article is peppered with words like deceit and fraud, and it repeated this eternal myth that the Millerites waited for Jesus to come in their ascension robes. Okay. The article just ticked Froome off, who, who then prepared a blistering reply to Talbot. 
Arthur Maxwell, still editor of Signs of the Times, right, joked that it should have been printed on asbestos paper, meaning a fireproof material, right, because Froome's words were fire. I don't think Maxwell put it quite that way. Um, but Froome sought counsel from both Reed and Reed's like, hey, you should show this to the general conference president. And, uh, you know, and the response was toned down. Walter Martin, on the other hand, was absolutely enraged at Talbot. As they met on April 11th, the Evangelicals and the Adventists, that is, Froome said that Martin, quote, was so agitated that he paced the room like a lion, and he said they are going to put the crimps on that man and either force a retraction or force him to stop that type of stuff, end quote. Why did Martin react so strongly to Talbot's article? I mean, it was hardly anything different than what Barnhouse had written, okay? Even if a bit maybe less restrained, less disciplined than Barnhouse's writing, Perhaps there was some professional rivalry there. I don't know. Martin saw himself as the expert on cults, not Talbot. Or perhaps Martin feared that Talbot's tirade would unravel the progress he was making with Adventists. You know, Martin, are you really here on good faith? I mean, look at your look at your pit bull over there <laughs> chomping after us. <laughs> Does it really matter what we tell us? It seems like you evangelicals are just going to come to whatever conclusion you want anyway. Well, whatever the reason. Martin was just furious with Talbot for that article. But now both sides needed a break. Froome was set to go to Europe from the end of April to early August, and Martin had to sit down with Barnhouse and more fully explain all of this. There was a, a, a distinct possibility that Barnhouse could think Martin had been swindled, been deceived, been tricked by the Adventists, and he should be fired from this project of writing this book about Adventists to be replaced with someone who had a more sufficient appetite for flesh. But even if Barnhouse could be persuaded, Martin knew full well that accepting Adventists as Christians would mean, uh, what that would mean from the legion of evangelicals who were licking their lips at the thought of, of Martin ripping the Adventist church in two. Barnhouse, thankfully, was coming around, and Martin kept his job at eternity. Barnhouse himself had gone to Germany to speak, and while he was there, wrote to Martin that, you know, maybe when I get back, it'd be a good idea for the group to meet at the Barnhouse house. What do you think? Martin got another job during those summer months. This is when he was appointed by Zondervan Publishing to, to direct this new division of cult apologetics. Now, a brief word is in order here, because today, Avenus probably don't think twice about purchasing a book published by Zondervan. Back then, Zondervan was, as Unruh says, quote, the source of a great deal of anti-Avenist literature, end quote. That was putting it delicately, I guess. Froome called them bitter and atrocious. Avenists now had a friend in high places, and they recognized the strategic value of Martin having that position there. Martin, in turn, proved his worth almost immediately by canceling a contract that Zondervan had for two anti-Avenist publications, one of which had been written by Lewis Talbot. Ha ha ha, sweet revenge. Meanwhile, Froome was equally embarrassed by what his own side was publishing. He lamented M.L. Andreasen's book on Hebrews as having some, quote, gravely inaccurate statements, end quote, which might contradict everything he had been telling Martin. Froome and Reed felt they couldn't defend Andreasen against Martin's attacks, and so, Avenus, uh, Froome realized, would have to run a tighter ship in terms of the theology that they were publishing. Spoiler alert, Andreasen isn't going to take this well. 
Now, just a month in, we are already seeing how this dialogue between Adventists and Evangelicals was changing how both sides handled their own people. Martin wanted to clamp down hard on Evangelicals who were still blindly blasting Adventists, and Froome felt similarly towards Adventists in his own camp who were publishing things that he felt contradicted the things that he was telling Martin and Cannon that Adventists actually believed. Including, by the way, one of the things that Froome disagreed with, including a statement that the previous General Conference president, William H. Branson, had published just a few years earlier, stating that Jesus had, quote, man's sinful nature, end quote. This had scandalized Martin and Cannon, right? Are you saying Jesus sinned? What does this mean? Well, as Julius Nam points out in his dissertation, Branson, to his credit, changed this wording when someone brought it to his attention weeks after Froome's critique, purely by coincidence, it seems. Froome continued to confide in Arthur Maxwell through the summer. When Froome expressed eagerness to meet Martin Niemöller in Germany during his summer speaking trip, Maxwell shared the feeling, quote, I agree with you entirely that we have too long neglected these distinguished theologians in the other churches. I am inclined to think that some of our men have been afraid of their superior educational accomplishments. But as you know only too well, the better educated these men are, the humbler and more approachable they usually turn out to be. End quote. Froome went on to meet Edmund Schlink, another German theologian to whom Froome had sent a copy of his prophetic faith of our father's books. Schlink was not on the Avenus end of the spectrum. He was destined to be the evangelical church in Germany's representative to the Second Vatican Council in a few years, but Froome found that Schlink was happy to meet him, even though he chided Adventists for not playing nicely with other Christians. Schlink asked Froome whether Adventists wrote anything other than propaganda, which probably hurt Froome a little bit. Froome responded by describing the Adventist progress in medical field, in temperance reform, in humanitarian work, which did seem to impress Schlink. Schlink had read Froome's books and placed them in the university library when he was finished. And so Froome found that several of the students at Heidelberg University, where Schlink taught, had been reading Froome's prophetic faith of our fathers there. Now, Adventism was, was making inroads in a prestigious university in Germany, and Froome knew what lesson to draw from this story. Arthur, he wrote to Maxwell, quote, I want to tell you that we have made a mistake in not fraternizing with these men. I told him I wanted to talk with him and let him see that I don't have horns, end quote. During the fundamentalist era of Adventism, can you imagine any Adventist leader desiring friendship with those evil German theologians? Mm. Froome and Maxwell's views here portended a rift between this emerging neo-evangelical Adventism, which, which sought a better relationship with other Christians, and the, the remnants of the fundamentalist Adventists who saw such friendship as dangerous. And these two threads, of course, are going to continue even until today. Unruh was on the same page as Froome. If Adventists believed that the majority of God's people existed outside of the Adventist church, then, quote, God must have some shepherds for those sheep in other communions, end quote. What's more, 
those people could never join the Adventist church, quote, until the Adventist denomination is set before the world as being absolutely orthodox on the fundamentals of salvation, end quote. Unruh went on, quote, we continued to emphasize before the world that Jesus is coming the second time when most people don't believe he came the first time. We continue to convince the people that the seventh day is the Sabbath when they don't believe the Bible to be the word of God, end quote. Now, Barnhouse wanted to join this discussion, hear for himself what the Adventists were saying. Since Barnhouse was being added to Martin and George Cannon's side, the Adventists would be permitted to add another member to their team. Froome selected Roy Allen Anderson for his history of maintaining good relations with Christians of other denominations and for his experience in public evangelism. In fact, Froome had wanted Anderson instead of W.E. Reed at the very beginning. He found Reed a little bit of a blunt instrument, though he didn't regret Reed being on the team. Still, Froome thought Anderson's diplomatic gifts were well-suited to the task. But Anderson had been traveling when the talks began, so... All right, Reed, you're on the team. Unruh wasn't really in favor of Anderson joining the team, but Reed did welcome Anderson, offering Anderson his place on the team. Maybe I'll step down and Anderson can take my place. It was a sign of a little bit of tension between Reed and Froome. Now, on October 22nd, 1955, Martin met with the Avenus again to plan the meeting that was going to happen at the Barnhouse house. In fact, Martin was a little short on cash and asked the Avenus to spot him <laughs> and Cannon $82.20 for airfare. And then, three days later, Froome, Unruh, Reed, and Anderson made their way to the Barnhouse house in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, 45 miles north of Philadelphia. Barnhouse welcomed them warmly and set the tone at the beginning by saying that he fervently hoped that there might be a spirit of love during their talks. So they prayed together, and then Barnhouse let the Avenus know his opinion of them. Barnhouse believed that they were ignorant fanatics who believed people needed to keep the Sabbath in order to be saved and taught that the devil was the sin-bearer. And then he talked about how he had read the works of former Adventists like E.B. Jones who just confirmed in his mind that all of his suspicions were true. But now, with what Walter Martin had just shared with him, he came to realize that Adventists were indeed Christians and that he had been wrong. Oh, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, Barnhouse said. I still have some very serious, serious disagreements with some of your theology, and you know, I'll let you know about that. But you get the impression here that, that Barnhouse didn't admit that he had been wrong about many people before. Here he is apologizing to Unruh for an article he wrote, and here he is not exactly apologizing, uh, though maybe he did, but just admitting that he had been wrong about Avenus his whole life. Okay, Barnhouse is about five years from the end of his life right now, and it took this long. He's not too proud to say, I had it wrong about you guys. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, this was a Barnhouse that had changed since his decision in early 1953 to, to listen to other Christians and not to be so quick to attack people. Much to Froome's delight, the first day's discussions centered around his prophetic faith of our fathers, his, that four-volume opus that narrated Christian history in a distinctly Adventist voice. This was a book that Froome had traveled to Europe several times for to do research. He'd spent 16 years on this project. I mean, it's a, it's a massive opus. 
And and you know then Froome went on a, a, a campaign to get this these set of four volumes in as many universities to as many prominent Christians around the world as he could. I mean, a set was sent to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. It was sent to Heidelberg University in Germany, of course. Another set was reviewed in the journal uh, from the American Society of Church History, which did recognize it as a very slanted reading of history, a very denominationally focused reading of history. But Martin, Barnhouse, and Cannon respected Froome's achievement there in that book. Again, there were still some disagreements to work out concerning Adventism's Christianity, the precise contours of it. And Unruh described it this way, quote, The questions and answers so far developed were reviewed in depth during both days of the conference. We came to see that many misunderstandings rested on semantic grounds because of our use of an inbred denominational vocabulary. Our friends helped us to express our beliefs in terms more easily understood by theologians of other communions. End quote. Inbred denominational vocabulary. Well, that's a great way to put it. I think today we'd probably say insider language. Now, every group has insider language, okay? But it was in these talks with the evangelicals that these Adventists became so painfully aware of how that insider language is a barrier to understanding. Of course, to Adventists who might not care about reaching peace with the evangelicals, this will all smell like compromise, right? We're changing the words we use? But let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? We'll cover that in the future. That evening, Martin, Cannon, and the Adventists met at their hotel to talk some more. Martin and Cannon knew Barnhouse better, of course, and described his open attitude towards Adventists as a miracle. A miracle. It was astonishing to them. Now, more astonishment was to come on the second day when Ellen White was brought up. Roy Allen Anderson earned his spot on the team here during the discussions by pointing Walter Martin to an Ellen White statement where Ellen White wrote, quote, We should come to the investigation of God's word with a contrite heart, a teachable and prayerful spirit. We should not study the Bible for the purpose of sustaining our preconceived opinions, but with the single object of learning what God has said. If... There are those whose faith in God's word will not stand the test of an investigation of the scriptures. The sooner they are revealed, the better, for then the way will be open to show them their error. We cannot hold that a position once taken, an idea once advocated, is not under any circumstances to be relinquished. There is but one who is infallible, he who is the way, the truth, and the life." End quote. Now, you can imagine how this quote appealed, appealed to Barnhouse, who had always felt the same way, right? If, if someone's faith won't stand scrutiny, then it is better that they learn how weak it is than to go their whole lives thinking that they are strong. Barnhouse was so impressed by this statement that he ran upstairs to his secretary and had his secretary copy it for him so he could have a copy of it. The two days spent at the Barnhouse house was invigorating. Unruh was on to something when he wrote, quote, We Adventists had come to see that we could state our doctrinal positions with clarity, in language understood by theologians of other churches, yet never bending for the sake of clarity or harmony alone, end quote. Now, Unruh was writing years after this whole affair became controversial, so he is careful to add that the goal here was never to change what Adventists believe. Fine. But what's interesting about that statement is that it tells us that the Adventist side walked away with a confidence boost. I mean, having confidence in your beliefs and the correctness of your beliefs is one thing, but having confidence in your ability to express them well 
is another. I tell you, if you've ever had a theological conversation with somebody, like a really deep one where, you know, you're challenged to explain what it is that you believe in in a way that you haven't had to before. I mean, it really, you can get this this kind of uh, emotional rush afterwards of feeling like, wow, I, I just passed a test. You know, I, I didn't study for it. Uh, at least not consciously. We went and had this conversation. It was fruitful. We were engaged. We were both sharing our ideas, you know, and we were connecting and understood each other. I mean, there's just nothing kind of like it. It wasn't just a one-way preaching. It's like this was a conversation between between practitioners, between people who know, and, and, and we understood each other, despite the fact that we believe many different things. So well, the Adventist side is feeling better. It's not that they didn't have confidence in what they believed beforehand, but I think the, the expression of belief is different than confidence in the belief itself. Like, I, we have confidence that yeah, we can come to this, these, these foreign people who believe these, these very different things in some respects, or who are hostile to us, or were hostile to us, and we could express ourselves well and be understood and be appreciated. It felt good. It felt good. Now, returning home from the Barnhouse house, Froome wrote Barnhouse a letter expressing appreciation for his hospitality. Speaking of Walter Martin, Froome wrote, quote, He has unusual gifts for a man of his age. We have learned to love him as a brother in the Lord, end quote. Froome went on to say that he hoped that Quote, a new day may come in our mutual witness before the world, end quote. Now, this rather innocuous statement is curious in light of all that we've covered in Adventist history. Our mutual witness? Is that how Adventists had always seen it? We're in this together, side by side? Is it possible that just as we are speaking of a neo-evangelical movement, that is a resurgence of evangelical Christians who, who are rejecting the belligerent tone of fundamentalism in favor of, of a little bit more cooperation with each other, that we, is it possible that we could also speak of a neo-evangelical spirit within Adventism rising at the same time? Just as Adventists had followed uh, evangelicals into fundamentalism, are they following funda- uh, fundamentalists right back into evangelicalism? What happened to the Adventist diatribes against apostate Protestantism? Weren't believers supposed to come out of these fallen churches, this Babylon? I don't think Froome would disagree with that. It's more like a, a, a new tension is forming within Adventism. Yeah, you had this Babylon critique. But now you have something else alongside of it in tension with that, which is which is brotherhood. Yes, there is Babylonianism in in the sense of of believing some of the wrong things about God. There's Babylonianism in Barnhouse, but there's a brother in him too. Yes, there's Babylonianism in evangelicalism, but there's also brothers and sisters there too. How, how How do we believe both things at the same time? How can they be both brother and Babylon at the same time? That that's that's the part that's intention, right? It's it's you can't reconcile that neatly. But both things to them seem to be true. Adventists are are both working against these churches by trying to reform their theology, by trying to get them to to accept the truth that Adventists believe that they have, while at the same time they're also working with these churches to, to preach the gospel to the world. 
The world was a much bigger place in the 1950s. How could Adventists possibly reach the world all on their own? Maybe God had a role for some of these other churches in finishing the work. Maybe. When Arthur Maxwell visited headquarters, Froome let him borrow his correspondence with Walter Martin. Maxwell thought it was brilliant, and he gave Froome an idea. Why don't you publish this stuff? Well, that, that spooked Froome, who came alive to the idea that his letters to Martin might be leaked. That would be disastrous. It would embarrass everyone involved. Can you imagine what some of his enemies might do with it, or, or even just how well-meaning people might misinterpret it? Hmm. Yeah. Imagine what the fundamentalists might do with this ammunition before Martin and Barnhouse had a chance to present their conclusions carefully and, and, and reason them well. And because Froome didn't have explicit GC approval for what he had written, okay, if it created a firestorm in Avenus circles, then the GC could just look the other way as Froome was burnt at the stake, right? We never authorized that. This was something Froome was doing on his own. No, no, no. These letters cannot get out. Negotiations were positive, but they were still delicate. Trust would be broken if these letters got out. So Froome cooled to the idea of publishing anything. Maxwell could not use these letters in any way. And if something were to be published, then the GC leaders had to do it. They had to authorize it. It had to be their initiative. So Arthur, send me the letters back as soon as you can, Froome told him. This is, Froome wrote, quote, a far larger matter than at first it seemed, end quote. And so we have the first meetings between the Avenus and Evangelical representatives. Now, don't worry, we're not going to go through all 18 meetings this, at this pace, okay? But I think it's important to understand what is shaping up here. There's a genuine respect, even affection, that was forming between the two sides. Dare I say love? Unexpected, unsolicited, and people in the evangelical camp and the Adventist camp who are not party to these meetings won't understand it. And from this affection and respect, a new vision of Adventism was, was being articulated, was forming a, a, a more gospel-oriented Adventism, a more neighborly Adventism. I guess we can call it Spider-Man Adventism. Right, like Froome and company, they didn't retreat from their core beliefs here. But they were tired of fundamentalism. They were tired of the fighting. They were tired of Adventism's reputation among other Christians as a, as a kind of a snarky, small dog syndrome kind of denomination. I almost apologize if you have small dogs for that comment. But, you know, like the just yappy, 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 yappy kind of religion you know always challenging people always you know looking down on these on these bigger more prestigious denominations as if adventism you know kind of kind of has this reputation of being smug now, i'm not saying all of that is deserve it okay but it's like we can do something to combat that can't we like can't we communicate better about what we actually believe Froome wanted an Adventism that was less insular, more helpful, more engaged. Again, he didn't set out to change Adventist theology. Adventist theology, I mean, this is this is what a lot of people don't understand when they get in the reacting the QOD, especially negatively, is, is that Adventist theology was this is this, it's like a soup 
you know, you'll have books published that are pro-Trinity, books published that are anti-Trinity. I mean, there's, it's not like there's one true faith here, right? Now, of course, everybody will say there is, and the rest of that is just noise or worse. But I mean, it's all there. You can find a number of positions within Adventism at this time on a number of issues. All of them published officially. They may not be endorsed by the highest officers of the land, but I mean, they're, they're freely disseminated. They're freely taught. And so people are sometimes like, well, yeah, QOD, you know, it, it, it's changing what Adventists believe. It, but it's not. Froom is simply picking one of those ingredients in the soup, saying more of this, less of the other stuff. Room and company didn't retreat from his core beliefs. They were just tired of fundamentalism. They were tired of the fighting, as were Martin and Barnhouse, with, with their squad. But in order to realize this more neighborly, or more respected, less cult-like version of Adventism, they, they needed to do something about the Adventists in their midst, the lunatic fringe, as Froome dismissed them. This questions on doctrine process wasn't just about theology. It was about representatives from hostile religious groups coming together at the table of peace, realizing how much they had in common how much in particularly the evangelicals misunderstood Adventism in finding respect and finding affection. And again, I mean, dare I say love, right? From saying Martin is a brother in the Lord. He's one of us. He's part of the family. Questions and doctrine is about that. And, and then the, the people around this table trying to explain Martin to the evangelicals, Froome and company to the Adventists, what they found at that table, trying to persuade them. Like, we didn't expect this to happen. But this is our love story. This is what we found when we came together. We weren't looking for it. We didn't ask for it. You know, we just thought it became a much bigger thing, right? Froome says, a far larger matter than at first it seemed. This is what it, like, I just want to show you guys what we found here. And it's, Part of the story is how people reacted to that story that Froome was telling about this relationship. It's not just about theology. It was about a new vision, not only for evangelicalism, a vision which had started long before this, but is influencing it here, a, a, a vision, a new vision for Adventism, right? Less of this ingredient, more of this ingredient. Let's be friendlier. Let's be more neighborly. Let's let's communicate better. Work in, in ways in which we can work with other Christians. It wasn't just about theology, right? It was about this love story, about this respect. It's also about this, this new vision for Adventism. And as such, it was about regime change. Because in order for this new spirit that Froome found at the peace table... In order for this new vision for Adventism, which Froome was trying to live out, in order for that to, to, to really be what Froome said it was, which is that it reflects the majority view of Adventists, 
there's going to have to be a new way of doing things in the Adventist church. Not that Froome was trying to be president, not, regi- not regime change in terms of politics, regime change in, in terms of culture, in terms of vision. It's not just about theology. It's about so much more. And we're going to pick it up again next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.